0: Acting That thing is moderator for tonight's broadcast. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's January 6th, 2022, the 351st day of dystopia. For those of you listening for the first time, you're going to hear some things you don't like or don't agree with. It won't be because what I'm saying is wrong or offensive. It's because you're accustomed to censorship that you deny exists, or you might even support it while not understanding how it changes the information you receive. Truth isn't what the authorities pretend it is. It's not something a special class of people pluck from the sky after receiving their diplomas. It's not something that can't be questioned. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. It's not whole and complete. It's messy and ever-evolving. Truth is ultimately unstoppable. In chess, the end game is the stage when only a few pieces are left on the board and the final moves are being made. In other contexts, it's the stage where the main objectives are completed, but there is still important work to be done. In a narrative sense, in movies and literature, it's the final act, the resolution. This story didn't start with COVID or the election, and it didn't start when Trump came down the escalator. It started before most of us were born. And they told us the wrong one on purpose. If the truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, theirs no longer does. Their story isn't convincing and it isn't connected to anything provable. It's only a vehicle of control. When the American people understand that, we will unite and move forward. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. So I apologize for the extended absence over the holiday. I wasn't sure that I would actually not record any podcasts, but after a few days of break, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to kind of reset the show a little bit. And so I spent the rest of my time thinking about how to do that. I know that for most of the people listening, 2021 was an absolutely disastrous year full of frustration and stress, the dejected feeling of having endured what we were forced to endure between the ridiculous COVID narrative and then the election. And when we thought it couldn't get any worse, they kept going. And trust me, I am as frustrated as any of you. My 15-year career was ended with a snap of Gavin Newsom's fingers. I found out that 80% of the people I knew and liked on some level were just simply not my friends and didn't actually have the capacity to be friends with anyone because They decided that their opinions about a bunch of subjects that they would eventually readily admit they don't know anything about were so important to them and their public image and their public standing that they could no longer be associated with me. In fact, this is the one year anniversary of one of my best friends texting me, to tell me that I was responsible for the very violent insurrection. I got banned on Instagram and Twitter, which is, of course, for the best, and I'm kind of proud of it. But I imagine how much different the reach of this show would be had they not done that. There is still a class of people in this country who are supporting the censorship of people they used to call their family and friends and neighbors. And that's a luxury for them because they know the things they say will never be censored because all they do is repeat the slogans. They don't say anything unsafe because they're scared of the consequences. But the stories they tell don't make any sense. So what they do is try to Reimagine reality so that it fits the story they're being told because they can't come to terms with the fact that they were deceived. They're convinced that they believe what they believe because they are good people. And then they believe they're good people based on what they believe, but they fail to make the connection that if you're preventing, any other point of view from being discussed, then ultimately you have no idea what's really going on. Censorship doesn't just punish the censored. It punishes all the people whose lives could be improved by knowing the whole story. Censorship on this scale makes human relationships difficult. It makes your daily decisions difficult. And it makes earning a living difficult for anyone who isn't repeating the slogans. Trust me, I know. But I don't think that we need to dwell in the frustrations of 2021 because so much is happening now. Today is January 6th. This is basically the last arrow in their quiver. They need to make January 6th a thing forever because they have nothing else to point to as a reason they should be trusted. Everyone else has to be dangerous because they have failed at everything and everyone knows it. Each day, more and more people realize that the COVID narrative was a lie and the election was stolen. Their agenda is dead in the water. Their representatives are choosing not to run again. And the vast majority of Americans are feeling the negative impacts of this illegitimate administration being in place every day. After this, they have nothing. When their celebration of January 6th is seen by Americans as the farce that it is. They will have nothing left to go on. So I think one of the most important developments while I was away was Robert Malone's appearance on Joe Rogan for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the information that Robert Malone was able to lay out was excellent. His discussion on mass formation psychosis was awesome because he finally was able to give a framework that the public could understand about what's going on. That was so powerful that Google immediately started uh, messing with its algorithms to change the search results for mass formation psychosis. And of course, I thought that segment was particularly interesting because I've been focused on what exactly the personality type and the mindset of these people who still believe all of this stuff really is for the last two years almost. But one of the most interesting moments actually came at the end of the episode when Rogan was asking Malone where people could follow him and find his work, and he mentioned Getter. Rogan had never heard of Getter. And so he asked Malone what it is, and he told him, of course. And a couple of days later, Joe Rogan joins Getter. Now, people have their problems with Getter. I get it. I don't know what the right answer is, okay? Some people are saying that they've been shadow banned on there. I guess that they took Nick Fuentes off the platform already. I don't follow him. I don't really know his stuff, so I don't know what to say about that either, Obviously, I don't want them taking anyone off the platform. I think that's ridiculous. I also like Gab. I'm on Gab, but they are not the same platform. And so I want to see how all of this plays out. Again, don't have the answer. But Joe Rogan joining Getter is a significant moment in the battle for the narrative, right? Again, from the beginning. If truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality and good people gravitate toward that, all we need is for the right amount of good people to hear the truth because they will accept it, they will understand it, and they will understand what we've been doing the entire time. So Rogan joins Getter. He hasn't really used it at all yet. I mean, he hasn't posted yet. Maybe he's been reading it. I have no idea. But if he starts to, he's going to be exposed to the other side of the story that he's been missing. I mean, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt right now by saying that he is simply missed that story. I don't understand. I will say again how he has not had anyone on in the last 14 months to discuss election fraud. That says no good things about where Joe Rogan's head's at. The benefit of the doubt version is he has a lot of people who he trusts and thinks are smart, who also have no idea or they are completely bought into the central narrative. They are completely on the side of the global communist agenda, the Great Reset agenda. They actually like where this is going. They voted for Joe Biden, and they don't want to hear anything about how Joe Biden didn't actually get 81 million real legal American votes. So perhaps that's his situation. Perhaps he just has those people around and he's been convinced that there's nothing there and he hasn't really thought about it. And so he hasn't had any guests on. I find that extraordinarily disappointing. But assuming he genuinely doesn't know, if he spends any time on Getter, he is going to figure out that there is a world of information that he has been missing. Rogan has like the biggest audience in the world, right? He's got a a bigger audience than all the cable news networks combined. His interview with Peter McCullough, was reported to have hit 40 million views 10 days ago, 11 days ago. And you can imagine people are still sharing that. The Robert Malone interview will probably go even bigger than that. If I was him and I had that massive audience and I had been left in the dark about one of the most important situations in world history, I would be kind of embarrassed kind of ashamed, and then after I got through that initial period, I would be like, wait, what the hell just happened? How did that happen to me, right? The guy who can get any guest in the world, literally every single person on earth, probably wants to go on that show and get their viewpoint out to a massive audience, including me, by the way. He's the guy that people turn to to get the off-center viewpoint by listening to a lot of different guests and then hearing what Rogan thinks. He's got the most powerful show on the planet, and he was rendered clueless about the most important issue ever for 14 months. And truth be told, he was at least a year behind on the important elements of the COVID narrative. And only seemed to really wake up after he had gotten COVID himself. If I was him, I'd be furious. And the thing is, that moment is coming for him and for everyone else. The truth is only the one thing, right? Joe Biden did not get 81 million real legal American votes. It doesn't matter that some courts decided in his favor talk to any Biden voter about whether or not they think the courts are fair when a BLM case is in the news. They don't. They say that the Department of Justice under Bill Barr, Trump's guy, said that there wasn't enough material evidence of election fraud to overturn the election. And then CISA said it was the safest and most secure election ever. Those are the only three pieces of evidence, besides the television telling them so, to indicate that Joe Biden is a legitimate president. They have literally nothing else than to say all the pieces of evidence are wrong without knowing anything about any of the evidence. And they don't think that's insane. But the evidence is real. It's convincing. It's out there. All you have to do is look, and the thing is, more and more people are looking, so it becomes unavoidable, and what happens when a guy like Joe Rogan has that feeling, oh my God, I was lied to, right? Again, giving him the benefit of the doubt that he hasn't just been covering it up the entire time or that he's not controlled, that moment is going to be a game changer. Because he is going to be real unhappy. And he is going to start thinking, wow, a lot of the people that I've hosted on my show and believed were smart and honest and believed they were my friends. Oh, it turns out they were just lying or totally clueless about this really important thing. And they convinced me that they were the expert. They had the smart take. And I believed them. And then what happens when he looks at his social media every day and starts seeing the other side of the story and he's like, oh, wow, why am I not seeing that side of the story on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, whatever he uses? And then he realizes, wow, so that's what censorship does. Now, if I'm right in giving Rogan the benefit of the doubt that he just hasn't known these things, right, that he was sincerely and legitimately shocked with the things McCullough was saying, the things that Malone was saying, things that many of us have been saying for 18 months or longer than you can expect. He will be pretty loud and outspoken when he finally does figure it all out. And at that point, what are they going to do? I mean, the COVID narrative is getting wrecked on every level. Now you have people on CNN saying that cloth masks don't work. And of course, they don't work. And we've known that all along. Cloth masks have never worked. And yes, N95 masks might be able to stop a virus if they are worn properly, which means that a man can't even have hair on his face. Literally, your face has to be shaven to wear An N95 properly, okay? Cloth masks don't work. They have never worked. Not the entire time. Not while they were taking cute selfies on Instagram. And not while they were saying mask up. And not while Anthony Fauci said you should wear two masks or maybe three. But I guess without notice from the science, we're back down to one. But the one doesn't work either. And it doesn't work while they're forcing your kids to wear them. And we've known that the whole time. So the people on television must also know that if they are, in fact, experts. And so what does that mean? That means they were lying. And lockdowns didn't work. Lockdowns put people out of work. They caused domestic abuse and child abuse and drug abuse. They caused over 200 million people in the world. And that number was from last year. It's probably double or triple that to descend into extreme poverty. And those were their two main mitigations. They blocked hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. If you don't believe me, go read or listen to Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s book, The Real Anthony Fauci. You'll have it all cleared up. They're changing their standards on lockdowns and quarantine and testing like every week. And then thinking about changing them back because they can't even all get on the same page about what they're saying the science says. And the vaccines don't work. They don't prevent infection, transmission, serious illness, or death. Their effectiveness is based on an antibody response that may not even protect you from any of those things, and it goes away almost immediately. And it turns out Most of the cases in the world, an overwhelming proportion of cases in the world are all in the fully vaccinated, except no one's fully vaccinated. And Anthony Fauci said it himself in a presentation to doctors yesterday we're using the terminology now, keeping your vaccinations up to date rather than what fully vaccinated means right now. Optimal protection is with a third shot of an mRNA or a second shot of a J and J. Got that? There's no fully vaccinated. Not for anyone, ever. Okay? If you think only fully vaccinated people should be able to do things in the world, then what you're saying is that everyone, including you, has to sign up to get injected with whatever they put in there for the rest of your life up to date. That's a subscription. So the entire narrative is falling apart. Okay, people who did not agree with us and wouldn't even listen to us at all six months ago are listening now and they're agreeing with us and they're understanding they've made some bad decisions. That's where we're headed. And a lot of these people need an acceptable construct through which they can understand this. Okay. And Rogan right now is that guy because of the size of his audience and because of whatever amount of openness he maintains on that show. Obviously it's not enough because we're still here on election fraud, but we can't underestimate the importance of what's happening there. The Peter McCullough interview was shared 40 million times as of the 26th of December, at least. And you can imagine the Malone interview is doing the same thing. The entire COVID narrative is collapsing and it's happening quickly. And Joe Rogan plays a huge part in that. And so if you imagine our battle as winning the narrative, and from the beginning, that is what I have said, this battle is right. We are in an information war. Primarily, there are other elements of war taking place right now, but we're in an information war. I think that that's to the point of being undeniable unless you are just totally asleep and detached from reality. But in an information war, how do you win? Well, it's obvious they need the people. They need the people to believe something. OK, either they can believe the truth or they can believe the central narrative as passed down to us by the same global communists that plan the world out. They map out everything for every human, not for them, for everyone. Every year in Davos, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab wrote The Great Reset. He lays all this out. The COVID narrative was laid out for everyone to see. 2017, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. The document is called Spars Pandemic 2025 to 2028. If you want to read it yourself, look it up online. Probably not on Google. It exists in the information stream for my podcast. Go download Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. Use the search feature. You'll find it. They always lay these things out. Go read the Transition Integrity Project, and you'll see how they planned to steer the narrative and steal the election. And in those documents, you will find the framework for the central narrative. You can see how they predict it. You can see how they expect people to react. And then you can see how they plan to react to control the people. It is all there for you to see. And they do that. Because they need the people to believe what they're saying. If they didn't need the people, they could just overpower us with military force, except the military is also the people. Now, obviously, there are plenty of problems in the military in terms of leadership, but I still think that we can have some amount of faith that the soldiers in our armed forces do not want to pursue and track down and imprison and kill their fellow American citizens. I think we can be pretty certain of that. If they had the power to do that, they could have done it at any point, but that doesn't put the people on their side. They need the people on their side. And that's proven by the fact that they're always trying to convince the people that they are what's needed. They are the solution to all your problems. And who are all your problems? What are all your problems? Oh, they are all caused by this group or this group or this group. They are trying to divide the country so that they can seize control. They want the people to believe them. If no one believes them, then their plan fails. And that is exactly what we can see on every single level. Yes, it's frustrating to watch them try to advance their story, but they are being thwarted and we can see it in countless ways. And I've gone over that over and over and over. So if we are trying to win the narrative, right? Think of it as climbing to the top of a mountain. We have now passed that top point and we are on the way down. The public is on our side and becomes more on our side every day. How many people out there do you know that just totally black pill and they know all of what we know and they understand the situation and the gravity of the situation and how important this time is, but they just give up. I don't know too many. I know people who are real frustrated and are waiting for something to happen. But I don't know anybody who's like, yeah, you know what? I decided CNN was right. MSNBC was right. The New York Times was right. Trump really did collude with Russia. So I believe that we are over that hill as far as the narrative is concerned. And I think that this past week with the Rogan stuff with between the podcasts and moving to a new social media platform, I think that might be the moment. And here is a little bit of proof of what I'm saying. This is from yesterday in the New York Times. Election falsehood surged on podcasts before Capitol riots, researchers find. Weeks before the 2020 presidential election, conservative broadcaster Glenn Beck outlined his prediction for how Election Day would unfold. President Donald Trump would be winning that night, but his lead would erode as dubious mail-in ballots arrived giving Joe Biden an unlikely edge. No one will believe the outcome because they've changed the way we're electing a president this time, he said. None of the predictions of widespread voter fraud came true, but podcasters frequently advanced the false belief that the election was illegitimate, first as a trickle before the election and then as a tsunami in the weeks leading up to the violent attack at the Capitol on January 6th, according to new research. Researchers at the Brookings Institution reviewed transcripts of nearly 1,500 episodes from 20 of the most popular political podcasts. Among episodes released between the election and January 6th riot, about half contained election misinformation, according to the analysis. In some weeks, 60% of episodes mentioned the election fraud conspiracy theories tracked by Brookings. Those included false claims that software glitches interfered with the vote count. Oh, no, that's proven in court that fake ballots were used. Well, that's proven in real life and that voting machines run by Dominion voting systems were rigged to help Democrats. Good luck on that. Those kinds of theories gained currency in Republican circles and would later be leveraged to justify additional election audits across the country. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh these things used to be said by people like Kamala Harris in Congress. The new research underscores the extent to which podcasts have spread misinformation using platforms operated by Apple, Google, Spotify and others, along with little content moderation. While social media companies have been widely criticized for their role in spreading misinformation about the election and COVID-19 vaccines, they have cracked down on both in the last year. Podcasts and the companies distributing them have been spared similar scrutiny researchers say, in large part because podcasts are harder to analyze and review. People just have no sense of how bad a problem this is on podcasts, said Valerie Wortshafter, a senior data analyst at Brookings who co-wrote the report with Chris Messeroli, a director of research at Brookings. Wortshafter downloaded and transcribed more than 30,000 podcast episodes deemed talk shows, meaning they offered analysis and commentary rather than strictly news updates. Focusing on 1,490 episodes around the election from 20 popular shows, she created a dictionary of terms about election fraud. After transcribing the podcast, a team of researchers searched for the key words and manually checked each mention to determine if the speaker was supporting or denouncing the claims. In the months leading up to the election, Conservative podcasters mostly focused on the fear that mail-in ballots could lead to fraud, the analysis showed. At the time, political analysts were busy warning of a red mirage, an early lead by Trump that could erode because mail-in ballots, which tend to get counted later, were expected to come from Democrat-leaning districts. As ballots were counted, this is precisely what happened. But podcasters used the changing fortunes to raise doubts about the election integrity. <laughs> It is amazing that they don't think everything they're describing is convincing people that they have good reason to doubt it. Election misinformation shot upward with about 52% of episodes containing misinformation in the weeks after the election, up from about 6% of episodes before the election. Uh, Hey, New York Times, do you think that might be because people found it more important to talk about after they had seen it happen in real life? Hey, maybe. The biggest offender in Brookings analysis was Steve Bannon, Trump's former advisor. His podcast, Bannon's War Room, was flagged 115 times for episodes using voter fraud terms included in Brookings analysis between the election and January 6th. You know why they're going to steal this election, Bannon asked on November 3rd? Because they don't think you're going to do anything about it. As the January 6th protest drew closer, his podcast pushed harder on those claims, including the false belief that poll workers handed out markers that would disqualify ballots, except that did happen in Arizona. Now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, Bannon said the day before the protest, the point of attack tomorrow. It's going to kick off. It's going to be very dramatic. Bannon's show was removed from Spotify in November 2020 after he discussed beheading federal officials, but it remains available on Apple and Google. Oh, I'm sure that they really described what he said accurately. And it's funny how they allude to the idea that he wants this done through mob justice and not through the actual legal system that has a punishment for treason. And what are we supposed to consider the theft of an American election? Honestly, when reached for comment on Monday, Bannon said that Biden was, quote, an illegitimate occupant of the White House, end quote, and referenced investigations into the election that show they, quote, are decertifying his electors, end quote. Many legal experts have argued there is no way to decertify the election. Oh, did many legal experts do that? Are they as on top of it as the researchers at the global communist think tank, the Brookings Institute, who, by the way, are implicated in the Russia hoax. And we're going to see that through John Durham. And I have a feeling we're going to start seeing some of that stuff pretty soon. Amazing. Sean Hannity, the Fox News anchor, also ranked highly in the Brookings data. His podcast and radio program, The Sean Hannity Show, is now the most popular radio talk show in America, reaching upward of 15 million radio listeners, according to Talk Media. Well, that's strange. I thought that we had just elected a very real president with the most votes in history. How could Sean Hannity's show be number one? And why is Tucker Carlson's show the number one cable show? That's so strange that there are so many more of them. But Sean Hannity is number one on the radio and Tucker Carlson is number one on the television. Gosh, that's strange. Underage people voting, people that moved voting, people that never re-registered voting, dead people voting. We have it all chronicled, Hannity said during one episode. Claims about voter fraud came not just from Hannity, but also his guests, including pollster John McLaughlin, who shared a private exchange he had with Trump in the exchange. According to McLaughlin's on air account, Trump said that the election was stolen. Yeah, McLaughlin said to the president, I said it yesterday on Hannity radio. Keep saying it. Trump replied. McLaughlin went on to say during the podcast, this election easily was stolen. And these drop boxes and the Dominion systems, their voting system are definitely the culprits. Claims about Dominion voting systems were debunked and internal Republican memos showed officials in Trump's reelection campaign knew the claims were false. That is an absolutely preposterous claim. They found an email from some low level Trump staffer who didn't agree with some element of the story. And then they ran these big headlines that people in the Trump campaign knew the whole time everything was okay. No. That simply did not happen. Dominion later filed a number of lawsuits against people and media companies who pushed the conspiracies, and Dominion will lose those lawsuits. They didn't win the lawsuits. They filed the lawsuits. They can file whatever they like. Dominion is still absolutely screwed. Representatives for Hannity, McLaughlin, and Beck did not comment when reached about the findings. Apple's podcast guidelines say the company does not allow podcasts that, quote, may lead to harmful or dangerous outcomes, end quote. Apple declined to comment. Harmful or dangerous outcomes. Well, that doesn't mean anything. And also, it means everything. It really just means whatever they want it to mean, and they can't get in legal trouble for censorship. And also, no one should feel bad if they censor somebody, because those people were saying things that may lead to harmful or dangerous outcomes. Spotify did not immediately comment on the research. The lack of moderation on podcast apps is particularly complicated for Alphabet, the parent company of Google and YouTube. The video streaming site cracked down on videos about election fraud, the conspiracy theory, QAnon and vaccine misinformation, prompting some podcast episodes hosted there to be removed but the same episodes remained accessible on Google's podcast app. Bannon's show was removed from YouTube shortly after January 6th, for instance, but the podcast remains available on Google's podcast app. Well, it also remains available at America's News and on Rumble. It's also the most truthful news-related broadcast that you could possibly find anywhere. Google has argued that its podcasts app more closely resembles a search engine than a publishing service because no audio is hosted by the company. A Google spokesman, Farshad Shadloo, said the app simply crawls and indexes audio content hosted elsewhere and that they have policies against recommending podcasts that contain harmful misinformation, including misinformation about the 2020 elections. You got that? So they censor a little bit, but mostly it's someone else's fault. So what we have here is basically just information laundering, right? The illegitimate regime in power knows that free speech is the greatest threat to their very flimsy grip on power, right? The most open space right now for free speech is the podcasting realm. And because of that, it's the most powerful and the most convincing. And we're seeing that play out in real time with Joe Rogan. And so they release a study by the Brookings Institution. That's the same group that John Durham has sent subpoenas to in his investigation. They are a liberal globalist think tank. The New York Times dutifully reports it. They include all of the slogans about election fraud, no evidence, baseless claims, conspiracy theories. Oh, it leads to violence. They do the whole thing. And that is why they use January 6th, because January 6th, ultimately the violence of January 6th is the justification for the censorship. If you let these people talk, if you let them talk about ideas and talk about election fraud and show other people the evidence, well, we're going to have another very violent insurrection. So if you even look at election fraud, you could be supporting a very violent insurrection and the end of our democracy. And then the New York Times readers read it. People talk about it and they decide, oh, yeah, you know what? We actually really do have to do something about those podcasts. And their hope is because this has always been how it was in the past. Their hope is that the people will believe what they read in the New York Times and they will think, oh, man, yeah, maybe we really do need to censor the podcast. I can't believe these podcasts are out there like just like monsters Like big scary monsters. And if enough people listen to those podcasts, we're going to have another very violent insurrection. And I'm going to have to see those pictures on my TV that I don't like. And then I'm going to have to post about how this is a problem of white privilege. And then they would talk about it on social media for days and days. And the media would push it up so it becomes a national story. And then. When the illegitimate regime decided to censor in coordination with their corporate partners who literally work in the administration, Joe Biden hired so many people from big tech into the administration. Okay, so it goes from The New York Times to the people and then the people respond and they want it. And so that corporations work with the illegitimate regime, and then all of a sudden podcasts start to be censored. And of course, the first one, oh, that was such a very offensive one. No one can disagree with that. And then the second is a little less offensive and people are like, wait a second. And then they've censored everybody. It's exactly what happened on Twitter. But this isn't a people's movement demanding censorship. It is top down, just like everything in a communist regime is top down. It's just a trick because they want people on their side. So the Biden regime says to their friends at the Brookings Institution, you know, we better figure out what to do about these podcasts. They do a study. They tell you virtually nothing about the study, but they say that the things these people are saying are going to be dangerous and they don't even need to worry about the censorship. They'll just turn another direction while More and more people every day are censored because they know the people who are still addicted to the central narrative do not care. There is no principle inside them that says censorship is bad. It only says censorship is bad, but no one has the right to make other people feel like they're in danger based on what they watch on television. Now, I don't think this is going to work, but it might. They definitely took people off of Apple and Spotify last year, but it was primarily people outside of the mainstream. Could they actually accomplish this when Joe Rogan starts talking about election fraud? If he's allowed to, I suppose. I mean, he's got a big Spotify contract. Is Spotify going to take him off air for saying what he thinks is true? Rogan's not going to like that. Rogan can start up his own show on a new platform the next day. I mean, unless he's got some kind of non-compete or something, but he could jump over to Rumble, blow that platform up and just keep on moving. Now, changing subjects without a segue. This is from Town Hall a couple of days ago, January 4th. Democrats intent on blowing up filibuster to unconstitutionally federalize elections. And this is the issue they're using all of their January 6th attention to try to get over the finish line. They have been trying to pass their election reforms for at least six months, and they've been talking about it for the duration of the fake presidency. And what you have to understand about this reform is that every single element of it, specifically erodes the integrity of every individual's vote while concentrating power in the illegitimate government. Democrats in Congress are conspiring and plotting to federalize elections and make it easier for them to retain control of the federal government. They are pushing unconstitutional legislation that violates the power of the states to run elections. To do this, Democrats need to blow up the filibuster. This desperate act by Democrats is nothing more than an insurrection against federalism. Democrats seek cratering polls for President Biden and are in panic mode about the fall midterm elections. If Republicans want to protect the integrity of elections, they need to fight the Democratic plan to put unelected federal bureaucrats in charge of state run elections to pass H.R. one, the for the people act. Democrats need to toss out the Senate rulebook and exempt the bill from a filibuster. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has stated his intent to use the nuclear option to pass this bill. A rule requires two thirds vote of the Senate to end debate, forcing consensus on any changes to the rules under regular order. The Senate rule 22 requires 16 senators to file a petition to end debate, followed by a vote of three fifths of all senators, 60 votes. What Senator Schumer seeks to do is to declare that the bill to federalize elections is exempt from this rule so that Democrats can ram through the bill on a party line vote. In his letter to his colleague, Senator Schumer invoked January 6th as a pretext for Democrat senators to trash the rules of the Senate. Schumer's dear colleague letter of January 3rd, 2022 stated in part, quote, the Senate was designed to protect the political rights of the minority in the chamber through the promise of debate and the opportunity to amend, end quote. Schumer then claims that the rights have been warped and contorted to obstruct the will of the majority. It is funny that Schumer writes with no shame, when it is well known that Democrats use the filibuster 328 times during the 2019-2020 congressional term. If passed, H.R. 1 would thwart the will of the state legislatures to control their own elections. The bill has many provisions that micromanage state-run elections, including forcing early voting, automatic voter registration, including the same-day online registration, and absentee voting without having to provide a reason. I remember the good old days when we had one day of voting and nobody complained. Yet now, if a state does not mandate two weeks of voting, they are designated as racist and anti-democratic. Most of the provisions of the bill chip away at the power of states and localities to run their own elections. One of the most offensive provisions, as described by the Heritage Foundation, would, quote, transfer the right to draw congressional districts from state legislatures to independent commissions whose members are unaccountable to voters, end quote. If enacted, this would remove the power of citizens of the 50 states to control redistricting decisions and allocate that power to unelected bureaucrats in the federal government. Another provision that will be the subject of lawsuits on constitutional grounds is one that authorizes the IRS to investigate nonprofits and consider their political and policy positions for tax-exempt status. Do we have any doubt that pro-gun, pro-life and future conservative institutions that mirror the views of Conservative Heritage Foundation or the Libertarian Cato Institute would be under fire? This provision would give the stamp of approval to government bureaucrats to discriminate against views that are disfavored by the regime in power. The most fascinating aspect of this debate is that Democrats know that their bill is unconstitutional and have added a provision to limit the right to challenge the bill in court. The bill limits lawsuits to the District of Columbia and forces them to consolidate their case with one attorney representing the interests of all the states challenging the law. If Democrats were confident that this bill was constitutional, no provision limiting the right to challenge the law would be necessary. There's also a sneaky provision that establishes a commission that will have the power to subpoena judges when bureaucrats don't like a judge's ruling. Make no mistake that the push for H.R. 1, the so called voting rights legislation, is nothing more than a power grab for Democrats. And that is indisputably correct. What the Democrats are attempting to do is make law out of all of the different methods they used to steal the 2020 election they are trying to codify all of it so that when the evidence comes out i mean it's out but to the broader public they will think yeah but we decided that those things are all legal now most of them probably won't realize that regardless of whether or not this bill gets passed those things weren't legal then and they did them anyway and there is overwhelming proof of that and before i get to some of that it's important to note that to break up this filibuster to get this bill passed, even if they take the nuclear option, which Chuck Schumer is talking about, they still have to get to fifty votes plus Kamala Harris. Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema have strongly indicated that they are not interested in doing that, which means that unless Mitch McConnell finds Republican senators who will vote with the Democrats to pass permanent election corruption, the bill will fail. Now, could he find a Mitt Romney or a Ben Sass or a Lisa Murkowski or any of the other senators he's found to vote for other terrible legislation and get them to vote for this? Yeah, maybe he could, but I kind of doubt it. Either way, What we need to do is understand what this bill is and what its provisions are and what those provisions set out to do, because right now the Democrats are left trying to pass this bill on the basis of calling opposition to it racist. And they've been doing that the entire time and it hasn't worked because it's not racist. Opposing this bill is what every sensible American should do again. Every measure in the bill reduces election integrity, election security, and they say that that is to advance the cause of making it easy for every American to vote. I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who thinks it's hard to vote. There are, of course, tons of lazy technocrats who want to be able to vote on an app, not realizing how ridiculously stupid that is. But most people don't have a hard time voting. Just like most people don't have a hard time getting ID, they just pretend that there is this set of black people in the country who can't get IDs. And so we're supposed to accept that and believe that and then think that requiring ID to vote is racist, except they do it in most of the world. Most of the world thinks it's crazy that anyone wouldn't require ID to vote. But of course, the Democrats believe that black people are ill-equipped to be able to get ID or vote, and then they call us racist because the switcheroo. But let's talk for a minute about one of the other things mentioned in that article, and that's redistricting. This is from New York Magazine's Intelligencer, and I don't know why they call it that. Maybe they're just saying we're more Intelligencer than you. Democrats are doing weirdly well in redistricting. This is from December 25th, 2021. Eric Levitz, the Democrat House majority was supposed to die in redistricting for months now. Pundits and political forecasters have predicted that Republicans could win back the House next year without flipping a single voter. After all, the GOP controls far more state governments than the Democrats. And this is a post census year when states redraw their congressional maps. Republicans boast sole authority over the boundaries of 193 congressional districts, while Democrats command just 94. Given the slimness of Nancy Pelosi's majority, several analyses projected that GOP cartographers would generate enough new, safe red seats to retake the House through gerrymandering alone. This has been a foundational premise of much of my own commentary, and it's an assumption that's animated the progressive movement's push for a package of democracy reforms that would, among other things, forbid partisan redistricting. But it's starting to look wrong. The new house map is more than half finished, and in many states where maps haven't been finalized, the broad outlines are already visible. Taken together, the emerging picture is far more favorable for Democrats than most anticipated. As of this writing, it looks like the new House map will be much less biased in the GOP's favor than the old one. And according to at least one analyst, there is actually an outside chance that the final map will be tilted ever so slightly in the Democrats favor for proponents of equal representation. The key criterion for congressional maps is partisan fairness. Is each party's share of a state's congressional delegation roughly proportional to its share of the statewide vote? Right now, in many closely divided states, it isn't. And typically, Republicans mine disproportional representation from the inequities. For example, in 2020, Joe Biden won more than 50 percent of the two-party vote in Wisconsin. But Democrats claimed just 37.5 percent of the state's House seats. That discrepancy did not reflect widespread ticket splitting, but rather the concentration of Democratic voters within three heavily urban congressional districts on a national level. A fair congressional map would be one in which the tipping point congressional seat, the one that puts either party over the top in assembling a majority, has a partisan lean roughly similar to that of the nation. In 2020, Joe Biden won the popular vote by about four point five points. Thus, on a fair map, about half of all House districts would have voted for Biden by more than four and a half points, while the other half would have either given him a smaller margin than that or else gone for Trump. Now, I don't know where he got that idea of a fair congressional map on a national level. okay? or the idea that people should get extra congressmen for being the majority in the cities, okay? They give you this idea that cities are all Democratic, all the outside areas are Republican. Therefore, since there's more people in the cities, Democrats should have all the people. As if cities aren't divided politically, as if cities are all just automatically Democrat. And of course, that's how they run their elections. And if you want to take the next step, how do they rig elections? They rig them in cities primarily. And whose votes are they always claiming to have in the cities? Well, that's black Americans and Hispanic Americans and other minority Americans. That's who they say always wins them the cities, except black Americans and Hispanic Americans and other minority Americans are all moving to our side. And when that narrative goes away, man, it's going to be real hard for them to steal those city's votes. And I'm going to jump down a bit in the interest of time. And because, you know, this is bad journalism. There are a few reasons why things didn't work out as progressive pessimists had feared. One is that contrary to partisan stereotypes, Democratic trifectas have arguably mustered more ruthless party discipline in redistricting than Republicans have. Illinois, Oregon and New York have all pursued aggressive partisan gerrymanders that have subordinated the job security of some incumbents to maximizing the overall number of Democratic leaning seats. You got that? They are actually willing to risk representatives that are in office right now for the reward of drawing better districts for themselves. By contrast, Texas Republicans took the opposite approach, opting to fortify their incumbents' hold on power at the cost of leaving 13 Democratic leaning seats on the map. Meanwhile, many red states have no room to improve on existing gerrymanders. To be sure, blue states have probably left more gerrymanderable seats on the table than red ones, simply because some of the nation's most Democratic states have outsourced redistricting authority to independent commissions. Fortunately for Team Blue, California's nonpartisan commission is poised to finalize a quite pro-Democratic map. As of this writing, California's House map is likely to feature 44 seats to the left of the country and eight to its right. If Democrats boasted full control over California redistricting, They probably could have produced a 50 to two Democratic gerrymander, but still not a bad haul. You got that? So in California right now, the districts are set up to protect Democrats in 44 out of 52 districts. And you heard him mention Texas and that Texas did not use the power to influence the congressional map in Texas and make it more red. And Republicans are failing to do this in other states as well. In Missouri, in Florida, in Kentucky, Mitch McConnell's state, the Republicans are not taking advantage of the opportunity to do this while the Democrats are. And why is that? Okay. well, the Democrats think they have a hold on this narrative, and perhaps they do. They talk about gerrymandering a lot. They say that the Republicans do it all the time, while, of course, they are the ones doing it. They are doing that same thing again. Maybe Republicans don't think that they can win the narrative issue here. And so the uniparty Republicans will do what they always do. The rhinos, they will say, well, you know, we just are trying to be fair about things. We know the Democrats won't do it, but we demand better of ourselves. We are more principled, more moral. But I don't think that's it. Because the Uniparty knows is in grave, grave danger of being destroyed. And that includes, obviously, the entirety of the Democrat Party, which will be finished. And I've been saying that for at least 18 months, probably closer to two years at this point. With fair elections, that party will be finished in November. Finished. But of course, we don't have fair elections at this point. Despite that, they are still melting down over the coming election. They are trying to make sure that they can hold on to power because if they fail to hold on to power and the philosophy of our movement comes back into power, well, they're all going to be investigated and we will find out all of it about the election fraud, about the Russia hoax, about the January 6th investigation, about COVID and probably about a million other things they don't want the public to know. So they're trying to pass the voting bill to enable cheating in every way they can possibly imagine. They're trying to redistrict so that somehow they can maintain a majority in Congress between the Democrats and rhino Republicans who are all serving the uniparty. And you can say, oh, that sounds conspiratorial. Well, really, do you understand that the redistricting is in the Voting Rights Act. They want to be able to do this from a centralized position forever. And they're doing this while a lot of America is moving out of cities. And the rhinos are allowing this because the rhinos depend on the uniparty system, on the global communist agenda. That is what keeps them in place and in power. They are not there to serve Republican constituents. They are only trying to protect themselves. If they were there serving Republican constituents... Then they would have a passing thought about the 75 plus percent of Republicans who understand that the election was stolen, the over 50% of independents who understand that it was stolen, and the 20 plus percent of Democrats who understand it was stolen. And that is in the polling, but they don't talk about it at all because it's the big lie. And if you talk about it, we'll get a very violent insurrection. And that brings us to this. This is from just the news on Tuesday. Georgia opens investigation into possible illegal ballot harvesting in 2020 election by John Solomon. Georgia officials have launched an investigation into an allegation of systematic ballot harvesting during the state's 2020 general election and subsequent U S Senate runoff and may soon issue subpoenas to secure evidence. Georgia secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger confirmed to just the news Georgia law strictly prohibits third-party activists from picking up and delivering ballots on behalf of voters, a tactic called harvesting that liberal organizers have tried to get legalized in many battleground States without success. The U S Supreme court this summer rejected Democrat efforts to overturn an Arizona law that outlawed harvesting in the battleground state. You got that. They want to be able to pay their operatives to go around and gather people's votes and then turn them in, all right? Now, the assumption on their side is that they're just doing people a favor by picking their votes up for them because certainly they can't get to their mailbox. I mean, they can't even get ID. And certainly there's this massive constituency that can't get to the polls and can't request an absentee ballot, which they could then have put in their mailbox. No, we need armies of people to collect everybody's votes. And once they do, they'll bring them to Mark Zuckerberg's Dropbox, dump them in there, and it's all good. No postmark, no problem. Throw it in the box. That's what the box is there for. Because who knows when it went in? We're just going to have to trust them like we pretended to in 2020, right? And of course, ballot harvesting is one of the main parts of H.R. 1. In fact, ballot harvesting and universal mail-in balloting were one of the things Nancy Pelosi held up COVID relief for in the summer of 2020. Raffensperger, who is seeking reelection in 2022, led a successful effort in 2019 to strengthen Georgia's prohibition against harvesting ahead of the 2020 presidential election and defeated an effort by prominent Democratic lawyer Mark Elias to overturn the harvesting ban. Raffensperger also reviewed and rejected claims by former President Donald Trump of widespread fraud during the 2020 election in a series of contacts under investigation by a local district attorney in Atlanta and the January 6th select committee in Congress. According to interviews and documents reviewed by Just the News, Raffensperger's office received a detailed complaint from conservative voter integrity group True the Vote on November 30th, saying it has assembled evidence that scores of activists work with nonprofit groups to collect and deliver thousands of absentee ballots, often during wee hours operations, to temporary voting drop boxes distributed around the state during the pandemic. Oh, so... The thing that I was just saying, it really happened in the 2020 election. How could it? The group informed the secretary its evidence included video footage from surveillance cameras placed by counties outside the drop boxes, as well as geolocation data for the cell phones of more than 200 activists seen on tapes purportedly showing the dates and times of ballot drop offs, according to documents reviewed by Just the News. The group also said, It interviewed a Georgia man who admitted he was paid thousands of dollars to harvest ballots in the Atlanta metropolitan area during the November election and the lead up to the January 5th, 2021 runoff for Georgia's two U.S. Senate seats, which were both captured by Democrats and ended GOP control of Congress. The group has yet to identify the cooperating witness to state authorities referring to him in the complaint simply as John Doe. The group does not allege the ballots delivered by couriers were fraudulent. Nonetheless, lawful ballots delivered by third parties to drop boxes would run afoul of Georgia's law. And again, there are many types of fraud and illegality. The ballots might be real ballots and they can't say whether or not the real person really filled it out and those were their choices, but the process by which the ballots were delivered was illegal regardless and those votes shouldn't have been counted. Raffensperger confirmed in an interview aired Tuesday on the John Solomon reports podcast that his office has deemed the allegations credible enough to open an investigation and possibly seek subpoenas from the state election board to secure evidence. We do have some information. Raffensperger said, and we are going to investigate that we did deploy drop boxes that were under 24 seven surveillance and because they were then that really, you know, can indicate Who dropped that information off? And we're really just going through that. And the article is pretty long. It goes on. Go read it if you like. Now, no one in the world should trust Brad Raffensperger at all. And I'm sure that no one listening to this podcast does. He has done nothing but lie and cover up since November 3rd, 2020. And the examples are everywhere. But this true the vote thing is not stopping at just Brad Raffensperger. They put out a statement that says they have this same type of information in five other states. They have evidence, full on evidence of a ballot harvesting operation where people would collect ballots and deliver them to those drop boxes. And so even if you believe that election fraud did not happen and Joe Biden somehow from his basement was able to garner 81 million real legal American votes You should still be able to admit that hiring partisan operatives to go around collecting universal mail-in ballots that often don't reach who they're supposed to reach and then depositing those ballots in a drop box paid for by Mark Zuckerberg who is actively censoring the regime's opposition and then allowing his employees into the administration and then collecting and counting those ballots with no chain of custody, which has been removed all over the country, including in Georgia. They do not have chain of custody documentation for thousands and thousands and thousands of ballots. You should still be able to admit that that is wrong, that that does not contribute to election security, election integrity, and the trust of the public in our democracy. And if you can get there, then why in the world would you think it's okay to pretend that H.R. 1 is about voting rights when that's in there? Now, I'm not going to get into January 6th today. If there is anything worth talking about, I'll talk about it tomorrow. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris made honestly embarrassing speeches. Joe Biden was yelling again about how very legitimate he is and how very bad Trump is and all of us are. And they'll try to play it out all day long and maybe try to get some other days out of it. But the country's not responding. No one is buying this bullshit anymore. We have reached the narrative tipping point. We are in the end game. I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm Your Moderator. The Substack is I'm Your Moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time. Out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast.